I was actually one of the biggest YouTubers from 2007 to 2011. I was one of the top 100 most subscribed video game channels on YouTube. Back in the day, we actually had these little awards that showed up on your channel page. And it would be like, this, this channel is the number 77 most subscribed for gaming. Or like, for this week, they got number 38 most amount of views for gaming or something like that. So I had those awards on my channel constantly. Worry about distribution first and then product second. Like you have to have the audience first in order to, to succeed. And so he said, okay, what we're gonna do is we're gonna build up an audience of people who trust us. Creativity is bred from boredom. And if you don't give yourself the time and the freedom to be bored, I feel like you don't actually have a lot of the ingenuity or creativity that makes kids or adults for that matter, so special, right? And so I feel like you have to work hard to be bored. Raul, are we in a simulation? I think the answer is no. I feel like there's, uh, among the tech, I don't know what the terminology is, among the like technocratic, techno-utopian crowd, there feels to me like an infatuation with are we living in a simulation where, you know, everything is like a, a multiverse kind of thing, a metaverse kind of thing where you have no control. Maybe I'm a bit too spiritual, but it feels to me like there is a path that we have as a species have kind of emerged out of and we're living in that now. Um, so I don't really think that this is all fake. I don't think we're living in an artificial simulation. I hope not. <laughs> That's an interesting, and that you had to qualify that this is an artificial simulation. But I think, in general, I, I would think of the word simulation as it's, you know, a mimicry of something else, something that's quote unquote more real, right? So what you're mm. saying is we've come from a complex and plausible path that we've evolved to the state that we are in now today. And there's no reason to believe that it was faked at any point in the past. Yeah, and that was a much more eloquent way of saying what I was trying to say. I feel like there's like a very logical explanation for how we ended up, the four of us talking here today, I think. And I don't think it's just a butterfly flapping their wing, which caused this like random uh, caught, like string of events, which, you know, were kind of not real. I, I don't know, maybe I'm... I'm conflating the realness of something with the simulation, but it feels to me like if we are a simulation, then we're not real, right? I, I don't agree with that as a premise. Yeah, you're kind of saying if there's a simulation that there might be some glitches that uh, we should, we should uh, have caught along the way. I like to think of myself as a pretty pra practical person, and I do strongly believe in cause and effect. Like there has, there's been a very clear sequence of events that have led us to you know my career being the way it is or the four of us talking here together um and it's kind of uncomfortable to think about this all being fake or or like a random uh something that you know there's nothing real behind it cool alex what's your take the way i see it i think real is relative in that oh this is a strong start whether or not something is real depends on how much knowledge that you have so if we're living in a ultra high quality matrix simulation with absolutely no glitches we wouldn't know anyways 
right? So the the fact that we don't have that knowledge means that we can't really make a a judgment on on whether or not it's true, anyways. And I think as Rahul mentioned, it's just what's the point of worrying about this if you are not omniscient enough to make the proper call? And it's really interesting to think about because if you look at the world that we live in, it's there's really no other basis to compare to because I assume all of us have only been on planet Earth, right? So a lot of these things are just real to you because it's the only thing you've experienced, like the four fundamental forces of physics and gravity. And like we've never been to like a planet where like maybe there's like no gravity somehow, right? So given that, I don't really think it's worth worrying too much about this because within the system that we live in, it's, I mean, it's all we know. That's really well put. Makes sense. Yeah, I'm definitely in Alex's camp. Uh, basically, you know, whether we're in a base reality doesn't really matter. We cannot tell. And like who said, we should just live our life, like uh, treat it as real and treasure, treasure it basically to the maximum. Yeah, if it, if it turns out we're in like some masterfully crafted matrix, then props to whoever made, made that matrix that we're all playing around in and don't realize. Cool. So welcome to the show. Today, we have two special guests, Alex and Rahul. Would you like to introduce yourselves? Sure. Yeah, I can go first. So yeah, I'm Alex. I um, have been in the tech industry for quite a while now, uh, a little over eight years. Uh, started off getting a computer science degree from UCLA in 2014. And then from there, went to PayPal. And that was interesting because I was actually there before the eBay PayPal split. So when I went to PayPal, I was technically an eBay employee for like six months <laughs> and then PayPal went public and then that whole split happened. And unfortunately, I didn't have the best experience at PayPal. It's, uh, it was a pretty slow company from from um, from a year there. So I left after just one year. Then I went to Coursera and that was a pretty cool experience because the company took a bet on me. I was their first Android engineer and they didn't have an Android app at that point. They had an iOS app and literally nothing on the Android side. So I was able to build their Android app from scratch. And I took it from like literally nothing to like 100K users. And I grew the team for myself to four engineers. And yeah, after two years at Coursero, I went to Meta. And it was called Facebook back then. Those were better days in my opinion. But <laughs> yeah, that's where I met Rahul. We were working on the portal video calling device together. And I was there for one year. And then I went to work on Instagram. Uh, decided to switch orgs within within the company and I worked on the ad side there for three years and I was actually pleasantly surprised because people a lot of people think ads are like you ads uh, but I actually had a pretty good time within that org I stayed in the same team the entire time it was the longest I've ever been on a single team and really came to appreciate a lot of the the meaty technical problems to solve with ads and when you get ads right they, they do feel seamless and I think it's a better experience for the user so yeah, I spent four years at Meta and kind of did the <laughs> very stereotypical leave after <laughs> four years because like your initial grant like runs out. And then I went to Robinhood and uh, worked uh, there pre-IPO actually just for like four months. So I joined Robinhood and then they went public. So I was at Robinhood for a year. And um, that was another interesting time because I was collaborating with Rahul on these many side projects during my time at Robinhood. So I, I am now... Uh, not at Robinhood anymore. I'm actually working on my own thing called Taro with Rahul. He's my co-founder. And our, our mission is just to make every software en engineer in the world much happier and more effective in their careers and just at their jobs. 
And it's, it's something I, I did in a much less scalable way. <laughs> Back when I was at Meta and Robinhood, I would mentor like five, 10 engineers at a time. Our goal is to mentor five to 10 million software engineers at a time with Taro. I think actually at a high level, Alex and I are actually very, very similar. In some ways, too similar. I feel like we're both career engineers. We like building stuff. Uh, we're actually both Android engineers. And we've kind of grew our careers at very similar companies, uh, you know, that are fast moving, prioritized builders. Um, and that's actually interesting to build a company together now. Like Alex mentioned, we're, you know, co-founded this company co- together called Taro, jointaro.com. And it's very interesting because like our skill set in some ways is like too, too overlapping, uh, which we can talk about later. But yeah, my background is I grew up in Michigan and then came out to Stanford for undergrad. This is back in 09. And that was a really interesting time to attend Stanford because I remember actually it was, you know, right after the Great Recession uh, where a lot of people were out of a job. The stock market was in shambles from the 0809, all, all, all the stuff that happened there. Um, but then what happened as I went through Stanford from 2009 <clears throat> until 2013, uh, when I graduated from undergrad, there was a huge amount of excitement around what you could build, right? You had people who were, I remember I had classmates across the hall who made an iPhone app. It's like the very early days of the iPhone. And they made literally, I think it was like three or $400,000. And for, for, you know, a 19-year-old kid, it was like, what? That's like life-changing money. And you made that by building an app on your MacBook? It's like, how could you do that? And and so I kind of, I got wrapped up into that environment of entrepreneurship and building and the power of technology, the leverage that you're able to get with technology. And so I... 2013 did undergrad. I stuck around for one more year and I left Stanford in 2014. This called a co-term program. So I did research in a lab during that fifth year and also got a master's degree. Um, and during that year, the professor who I was doing research with started a company using the work that we were doing in the lab. And he asked me like, hey, you've been part of the lab. You know the work we're doing. You know the application of it. Would you want to join the company I'm starting? you know, if you're, a, again, like you're starstruck by this professor, you're a 21 year old kid and this relatively famous person in the field, we were doing like machine learning recommendation system stuff. Someone very famous within that field is asking you to join the company. Um, it's hard to say no. And I actually, I learned later on that there are some really interesting ethical questions here about using your position of authority as a professor or a teacher or whatever. To, to unduly influence a student. So I actually learned later on that was kind of a, I'm not sure if it was technically illegal, but like it was kind of an interesting case. Anyway, I ended up joining a startup um, and then I worked there for about five months. So that's actually very quick, five or six months. And then very quickly the company got acquired by Pinterest. And it was at Pinterest where I actually made a very deliberate decision to no longer do machine learning stuff which is what I had been doing for years up until that point. I was doing recommendation systems and machine learning. And I thought that that would be my bread and butter. Like that would be my brand as an engineer is I would do ML and I'd be an expert. And what year was this? Because I feel like that's still early days as machine learning was really taking off in the public consciousness. The acquisition into Pinterest happened in 2015. The lab, the lab work I was doing was in 2014, 2013, 2014. But yeah, I think you're right. Like it was still very early days and there was, a lot of excitement, 
But at the end of the day, I looked at the work I was doing and I asked myself, am I enjoying it? And the answer was actually no. Um, I felt like I just had so much more fun when I could point to the things I was building, like on the screen, like with the pixels on the screen that I was, uh, I was able to show my friends or family, like here's what I actually did in a way that wasn't so tangible with machine learning. And also, um, when I came into Pinterest, there was a very urgent business need to have better mobile apps. I feel like 2015, 2014 was the heyday of, I mean, I think machine learning was taking off, but it was also the heyday of mobile. Like these are companies that Pinterest existed on the web first, and then they had to catch up a lot on mobile. And especially during that time when they were doing international expansion, trying to build the Pinterest user base outside of the US, um, Android was huge. And so I kind of jumped at that opportunity. Like I have an Android phone. I've only ever had an Android phone, which also made me kind of unique in Silicon Valley. That along with the fact that um, there was a huge business need for it. And I felt like I enjoyed it more. I just jumped ship and I no longer did ML. I, I jumped fully into mobile. I did that. I was there for about two and a half years until I left Pinterest in 2017 to join Facebook, now known as Meta. And then that was where I met Alex on Portal, which is like this hardware video calling device before I switched into another team, which is more on dev infra. But then I officially quit Meta back in January of 2022. So like, you know, nine or 10 months ago. And the other thing I'll just mention as a wrap up to my background is similar to Alex, there's always a thread of work or thinking that happened outside of my day job. Like for Alex, I think it was building stuff. And I, I built a couple apps too. Not not to the extent that Alex built apps, but for me, it was teaching. So I was pretty involved in an organization called CodePath. And then when I was at Facebook, I started a YouTube channel. I published a course on LinkedIn Learning. Um, I started teaching at Stanford, actually. I was a lecturer, which is pretty cool. But like pretty much since I was... It, able to like literally through 2015 so very early on in my career i was constantly involved in some form or another of teaching a seminar a course uh a youtube channel and that was also a pretty big part of you know what gave alex and the confidence that hey we've done this and we enjoy it can we turn this into a company that's super impressive. You guys graduated and joined you know successful fast-growing companies where you could really grow your career that's great uh, but where did you, where did your story start? I'm curious to hear, you know, where are you from? What's your, what's your childhood like? And what was that like for both of you? So I was actually born in Ohio. Um, so my parents both got master's degrees from the University of Cincinnati. So that's how I ended up in Ohio. So they settled down there. I'm actually like, if you go all the way back from a kind of like a mid-sized, by American standards, like a mid-sized, uh, very suburban city called Dayton in, in Ohio. And he's like a 100 to 125K population. I was uh, there until I was like four and a half, uh, something like that. So like not too long before I started going to school. One thing I do remember, which um, you don't really get in the Bay Area anymore, was, was shoveling snow. So like Bay Area has that like constant like tier one mediterranean weather right so like it pretty much never snows here <laughs> yeah but i remember shoveling snow as a kid uh back back in ohio um but interesting thing another kind of like twist to the story or maybe not a twist but my dad is also a software engineer <laughs> so yeah uh 
the the reason we came out to the Bay Area, so I was only in Dayton for like four and a half years, is um, a big part was the job opportunities. Because he was also a software engineer. He's like, well, Silicon Valley, that's where all the software stuff is happening. There's there's not a ton of software jobs. There wasn't a ton of software jobs uh, back in Ohio. I'm sure it's better now, but like back in the you know mid 90s, <laughs> there wasn't really that much, and the pay was certainly not as not as competitive. And this was before uh, getting a shack in, in the Bay Area cost you like five million dollars. So the the math was a lot more <laughs> it was a lot better uh, back then to come out to the Bay Area in the mid 90s. So we came out here, uh, settled in this city called Fremont, um, which is not as uh, you know, well known as like the the San, San Jose's and San Francisco's, but it's actually like a top five city in the Bay Area in terms of population. It's around two fifty k people now, um, and it. It also has a reputation of uh, being like a, a good city for families, uh, very low crime, very good schools. So that was another big reason why we came to Fremont in particular. Fremont has some of the, the best public schools uh, in all of California and frankly in all of the United States. So I don't know if you guys have heard of it. I think I told Rahul. I went to a high school called Mission San Jose High School. Uh, I actually learned after I graduated from college that my mom had an eye on that school. Um, like ever since we were like toddlers, like she had like some friends who are already in the Bay Area who were like, this is like one of the best schools in the nation. And there's like a big Asian population there. So like you can assimilate <laughs> there, it'll, it'll be fine. Um, so it was a very like tactical move to move into a particular area of Fremont because she wanted me and my little brother to go to that high school. Um, so I'm, I'm like effectively a Bay Area native. Like I spent like four to five years in Ohio, but I pretty much lived in the Bay Area my entire life. And I took like a small quote unquote break to go to UCLA, which is in SoCal. But then, you know, after I got a computer science degree, I came back to be in the Bay Area again. Um, but yeah, it's been wild uh, living in the Bay Area because it's just changed so much. I, I remember when like a million dollars legitimately got you like a mansion in the hills and now it gets you like a condo, <laughs> like a pretty modest condo. Um, and it much less traffic back then as well. Um, like this was like, you know, in the 90s, like Google didn't exist. Yahoo was on the come up. So there weren't as many like of these like massive titans. Um, and then Apple was also like far smaller. So the Bay Area was just kind of uh, another like family friendly suburban area back in the 90s. And I remember those days. Those were better days in many ways. <laughs> Yeah, it's like unaffordable for pretty much anybody at this point. Yeah, it's it's really impossible now. Like, let, let's say you're like, a, like the median income for, you know, American adult is like 52k, something like that. It's between like 45 and 55k. There is absolutely no way you can own property in the Bay Area with that income. Like if, if you and your spouse like have an income, it's like mathematically impossible. And that's kind of a shame. Um, but yeah, like this, like tech kind of runs in the family because like my, my dad's also a software engineer. He's worked for some of the, like the legendary companies of the previous era. He worked for both Yahoo and eBay, uh, which were like, it, it might be hard to believe now, but like back in the late 90s, early 2000s, those were like two of the best companies. And like they were the equivalent of like Google and Facebook. Um, but yeah, times have changed. <laughs> and yeah, the, the reason I actually got a computer science degree at UCLA, I, I didn't really have a ton of conviction on what I wanted to do. Coming out of high school, I was actually considering majors like uh, English and history because I actually I actually like history quite a lot. Um, but like 
like Asian families have a big emphasis on having a very pragmatic career path. So I knew those majors would have big struggles landing a, a decent job, you know, coming out of school. So I, di- I didn't pull the trigger on either of those. And then my dad was like, well, you can do computer science like me. And like job opportunity is like pretty decent. Like it's pretty attainable to get six figures. Um, so you can just do that and you can always switch if you don't like it. So I, I put in computer science and I got pretty lucky because I ended up liking it. The, the catalyst was actually I discovered Android development, similar to what Rahul talked about. It was just super cool being able to like see your work on your phone. So I was just like bored as a junior at UCLA. And I was like, I'm going to like check out this Android thing. And like, I have an Android phone. I, I've also only used an Android phone like my entire life. I, I've like owned an iTouch, but I've never owned like an iPhone and had, had it as a primary phone. And I just fell in love with being able to like hack up random apps on this little you know, device in my pocket that I carry around with me all the time. So that was actually what like made me stay within computer science. And it's it's interesting because like I, I told like my closest friends in high school, like I don't really know what I want to major. I just kind of put computer science as a placeholder. And then one of my friends, he he bet, he's like, I think you're gonna switch out of computer science. It seems like it just doesn't seem like it's for you. Because he bet me 50 bucks that like when I graduate UCLA, it won't be with a CS degree. But I did. So I got $50. So that's cool. Damn, Alex, that almost seems like the most tightly planned life from the get go uh, to like where you went to school, <laughs> to what school you went to in college, to what major you picked in college was like, it's like if you were to let me play Sims and I were to have like a Sims baby, that's how I would raise them. Like every step paid off, I guess. It's like a um, fairly common path among Asian people who decide to settle in the Bay Area. Like so many people from my high school have similar paths. It's it's, it's really crazy and interesting because like every couple months I'll get like a LinkedIn update from one of my high school classmates and I'm like, oh, they work for Fang now. They like, they got into Google, they got into Amazon. Like so many of my high school classmates also ended up eventually in computer science and they work at a Fang company. So Alex, what is a, a fond memory of yours? What's a good childhood story? I, I don't really have like one particular one. So something that I did, this is another interesting thing about me. I played a lot of Halo back in high school and, and a little bit of junior high. I discovered it in eighth grade. What, you were allowed to play video games? This is not a simulation anymore. It was very restrictive. My parents restricted video games a lot, like uh, K through six, like uh, up until I was like 12. Um, like, like kind of the standard, like you can only play for like 30 minutes and then there's like a family computer. I don't have my own personal laptop and then it was very tightly controlled. But like once I got to like high school, they were like more lax about it. But I played a lot of Halo in high school. My two best friends from high school, we, we bonded over the fact that we played Halo, Halo 2 and then Halo 3. So it was like a tradition. Every Friday, we would, we would walk home from school and we would go to one of our houses and we just all play Halo together for like four hours. Like we'd come back from school at like 2.30, 2.45 and we'd just pretty much play until dinner. And then we'd all go back to our, you know, our own homes and just have dinner. I just remember having so much fun during those like Friday night Halos, um, super, super fond memories. And I actually owe a lot of kind of like how my life has played out to Halo because something I did uh, mainly in high school is I created a YouTube channel about Halo. And I was actually one of the biggest YouTubers from 2007 to 2011. I was one of the top 100 most subscribed video game channels on YouTube. Back in the day, we actually had these little awards that showed up on your channel page. And it would be like, this this channel is the number 77 most subscribed for gaming. Or like for this week, they got number 38 most amount of views for gaming or something like that. 
So I had those awards on my channel constantly. So I was actually one of the first people on YouTube. So I learned actually a lot about YouTube. I, I was one of the first channels to reach 100,000 subscribers and also one of the first channels to reach over 25 million and then 50 million video views. Um, so I actually learned a lot about like what it takes to like manage a community and like have good content. And that is actually paying dividends now because now I'm coaching Rahul on how to run his YouTube channel because I've been doing YouTube on and off for like half my life because I, I started that channel when I was like 14, 15. That's actually a pretty interesting story as well. So first, Alex, I totally relate to the feeling of like, you know, an old school land party. I sound like yeah. an old person, but that's so much fun. There's something about sitting in the same room when you play video games that just yep. makes it so much, so much better. As I speak, downstairs from me, we have a little game dungeon basement. Uh, so I live with three other people. Uh, myself, my girlfriend, my roommate, and his girlfriend. So the four of us live together. We have four gaming PCs downstairs. And a lot of the times we'll like play the same games uh, in the same room to like recreate that. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, the second thing is, I would love to pick your brain on YouTube stuff sometime, but maybe I'm getting greedy. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. I didn't know that about you. Yeah, I. Um, if you want to learn more about YouTube, I've written, um, I think, a Medium article series about like how to succeed with YouTube. So I can share that with you with you later. And 100% like resonate with the land party thing. Like land parties are legit. <laughs> There's like yeah. in-person interaction is just legit. And it's kind of sad that having in-person interaction is so much harder now post-COVID. But yeah, I, I remember, I mean, it was essentially a land party. Like we would all just be on the same Xbox, like playing Halo, like split screen. And it was just super duper fun. And that's kind of yeah, like, even just watching your friends play is fun. Yeah, it's yeah. just like, you know, obviously you fight over it, but it's yeah. it's so great. Yeah, it's it's part of Halo's DNA. That's like kind of like why Halo one of the big reasons Halo did so well was they they really optimized it. It started with Halo One for like this LAN party play and and you could connect, I think like up to four Xbox, like original Xboxes together and you could play like a sixteen person Halo combat evolved like Halo One match and that was groundbreaking for like 2001 and yeah that's it's interesting because it's now it's all about flexibility so like anyone can kind of plug in from anywhere and connect online and go through steam so land parties are not as common now but yeah it's it's really interesting the paradigm shift that's happening with gaming and just how people interact with general in general over the past 20 years thanks for the story raul what about you you got any interesting childhood stories for us? You got a background, backstory? I feel like, uh, I mean, one contrast is that there was a brief period, maybe like a two or three year period where I was, my brother and I, my older brother, we were very much into Super Smash Brothers for N64 along with Pokemon Stadium. But I have not picked up a video game in years. Why? I don't know. I think it kind of goes back to, like at the very beginning, we talked about this simulation question, right? Like, I think that, I'm perhaps practical to a fault or like, unless I see what the value is, like what is the long-term value of me having fun tonight or like playing a video game? It becomes less appealing for me. Um, I'd love to have you at a party. What's the long-term value of us taking the shot together tonight? That makes a lot of sense to me. Cause like I'm networking. I'm like creating a deep, deeper friendship with you, which, you know, we're all smart and ambitious. Like that'll help out. But like the video gaming, you know, for the first half hour, it's like fun and you get to like see, see the other side of people. But then beyond that, I don't know. I always feel like there were other things I want to do with my time. Not to say I'm like judgmental of it. I think there's a lot to learn and a lot of benefits of gaming. 
but like I feel like I just been out of that culture for so long. Uh, my like once I hit like ninth grade or eighth grade, I like pretty much stopped. I grew up in Michigan, and my perception it, it was interesting because I feel like there was not that much pressure on me. I would say from my parents and my family to achieve academically. But it was very clear to my siblings and I that the expectation is that we should be doing well. And not just well as in like getting A's, but you should be at the top of your your class. And if you're not, you know, in the top five or 10, then something's gone wrong. And I never viewed it as like, if I get a B, I'm going to get beat up or anything. It was never like pressure in that from that perspective. But somehow I think my parents did a good job of, they had very high expectations without it feeling like, okay, it's Friday night, you better be studying right now. It never felt like they were pressuring me in that way, which I, which I was grateful for. Wait, so how did they convey that then? Did they just basically verbally tell you, hey, son, you're going to be one of the best? Yeah, it is a good question. I feel like for me, I'm the youngest of three. So a lot of my motivation, or a lot of what the standard was for me was blindly copied from my, my older brother and older sister. And I think they did a good job of it. Like my brother, he was exceptional in academics. Like he was one of the top in the country at, you know, like in, in, you have these math competitions in high school, like you have the AMC American math competition, you have the next level, which is the Amy and the beyond that. Like he did exceptionally well in all that. I, I don't think it was actually my, more than my parents pressuring me, it was my brother pressuring me. It was like, you better do <laughs> as well as I did or better. And actually I never did as well as him on math, but I did better in other areas. But I mean, I think for my parents, it was just more like, here's a few, like, I think they talked about the future, like, here's what you can achieve. And it was implicit in that discussion about the future, that here is the work you need to do now in order to enable that future. And it became clear to to me very early that, okay, this is kind of the expectation, and I'm going to try to hit that standard. Although it is interesting, because I, I don't think I had a concrete definition of what I wanted, or what success even meant. Because, uh, you know, in Michigan, I don't think I really knew very many software engineers. I mean, there were software engineers, but they were very much the IT type. They're doing work and they're in the back office and they're the second class citizen to the auto people. Like, you know, M- Detroit area, like my dad was in General Motors. Like, they're auto- mechanical engineers, the people who make the cars, they're at the top of the food chain. And then everyone is in a supportive role to them. And so it was never really like growing up, I don't think I could have told you like, oh, I want to be a software engineer when I grow up. That was a result of just being part of the Silicon Valley environment when I came out to Stanford in in 09. But yeah, I mean, I think growing up, there's a lot of discussion about academics and a lot of, like, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. Interestingly, I also feel like there's a lot of free time. Like, I grew up in suburban Detroit. Not, it's pretty boring, right? Like, not that much to do. I remember when both my parents were at work, my brother and I would basically invent games to play. And they were kind of like, looking back, they're kind of almost... Da- like they were dangerous or just stupid like for example one of them was called Pinecone <laughs> wars where we would grab pine cones from we lived in an apartment complex we would grab pine cones and throw them at each other until someone got hurt and the what? game would end when someone got hit by, by a big big enough pine cone but that was like us and the neighboring kids in the in the apartment complex we just play Pinecone wars and like things like that that like we just invent games and I feel like, you know, it's kind of fun to like, you know, I feel like kids these days, at least in Silicon Valley, I, no, I mean like in Silicon Valley, it's so programmed. It's like you go to, you know, your karate class and you go to soccer and then you go to like whatever other class and then you do homework and you go to bed. I'm grateful that I grew up in a time where you come back at like 2 or 3 p.m. and you have like literally three hours of free time, like nothing to do. And I feel like a lot of the interesting 
life lessons or a lot of the interesting ways to interact with people I, I learned in that period. So that, that, I mean, that would be like the one kind of fun or interesting story I would say from my childhood, that unstructured time. Which is kind of interesting because it almost sounds like a paradox, right? You're basically saying you grew up in a household where being exceptional is the rule, right? Where like all your siblings, including yourself, are high achievers. And yet, you know, there, there doesn't seem to be that much stress or pressure coming from your parents to achieve. And you're also saying that you had a lot of unstructured free time, which is just like a bunch of stuff that I don't really hear together a whole lot, right? I meet a lot of people who are like highly successful, but that's exactly because their parents give them so much pressure and now they, you know, meet me in therapy, for example, right? So that that's kind of interesting. So how did you end up, uh, you know, choosing computer science for your path? Yeah, I think that was something I feel like, like many things in life, it was something I fell into. Like it wasn't a deliberate decision, like maybe what Alex described of like, um, he had like the 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 sims sim, like the, everything kind of worked out like for me I, I came in i thought i would do i i think i i was pretty intent on doing something technical like something with a math background because i was pretty into math in high school like either applied math or i would do like physics or electrical engineering but then when i found out how much people in computer science like they were regarded well i think that was like the status of computer science was way more if i'm being honest compared to in michigan Software engineering, the status of that profession was way higher than what I initially uh, perceived. And you got paid a lot. And so like, okay, you're getting paid a lot and you're high status. It's like, and it's like kind of interesting. It's like you get to do cool, interesting work and you get to build things. And, and th- like, it just felt like it, it became very clear to me that why would you not do that? Like, unless you have a compelling reason not to do computer science, you should just go ahead and do computer science. That I think that was like the main motivation to pick that this is just a random story when i was in like seventh grade we would get so bored during lunch breaks uh for a bunch of the kids we had like a hour and a half two hour long lunch break we'd sit alone in the room and try to figure out how to play with the kids that were in the the classroom right most kids like went home or something over lunch uh so there'd be like five four of us in a room and then we'd turn on the ceiling fan i think i invented this game it's really dumb we'd turn on the ceiling fan and crank it up to max then we would take an empty water bottle and throw it into the ceiling fan and we'd sit in a circle in the room to see who gets hit first, <laughs> right? Because the ceiling fan would hit the bottle and fling it out to someone. And then we would start adding water to the bottle so that it would punch harder, right? <laughs> uh, so we just play basically water bottle roulette with the ceiling fan. No, I mean, I feel like creativity is bred from boredom. And if you don't give mm-hmm. yourself the time and the freedom to be bored... I feel like you don't actually have a lot of the ingenuity or creativity that makes kids or adults for that matter so special, right? And so I feel like you have to work hard to be bored. Um, Mm. And that's something that, and I don't feel like I'm bored enough today, just all the things going on in my life, but I I, I do miss that. That's very deep. Do you know, um, in traditional Chinese painting, uh, the most beautiful part or the hardest part to master is what they call liu bai. Which, which basically means a little bit blank, right? So like, you know, the, the, mm. the, bl- the blank part is actually the most, the hardest part to master. Uh, mm. and, and that's because, you know, it's left, to- left for creativity, for imagination, like you kind of hinted. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me. I feel like when you have a blank canvas, that's when you have the most number of options, right? You can do whatever yeah. you want with that. Yeah, cool. Um, so I should um, have mentioned this earlier, but uh, I kind of 
um, Mets, Rahu, and Alex because of Taro. Uh, I guess prior to that, because I was a fan of uh, Rahu's YouTube channel, he shared a bunch of videos about kind of how to do one-on-ones with your managers, uh, general career growth advice. I find it pretty useful. Uh, and, you know, I think I added him on LinkedIn first. Then uh, I found out they're doing this thing, Taro. Uh, I also have a passion for mentorship, education, um, so that's why I reached out to them, and you know, we started collaborating a little bit. Uh, so my, my question for Rahu is, uh, where did you find the passion for teaching? Is that from your parents? Because that's not a really a, a very common thing for for engineers. Um, I'm not sure where this came from, but like just very early on in my life, I think I was driven by a motivation to be helpful, to be valuable, and I think in general, like people want to be valuable. When you feel like you're needed or you're adding value to your partner, your family, your friends, it's actually very hard to find a feeling better than being wanted, being needed. And I feel like teaching is actually a very good way to be wanted or to be needed. It's like you're offering something so tangible, right? Like you're trying to debug this program or you're trying to build this Android app. I can show you how to build that Android app or I can show you how to debug that program. Um, and so I feel like in terms of just like there's actually very few other ways to become valuable so quickly, right? Like usually you have to go through school, you have to like work for several years and then maybe in your job at some point when you're 30 years old, you can be valuable. But like the beauty about the beauty with teaching is that I learned some subject in school and then like literally six months later or two months later, I can now teach it to someone who's struggling. And so I think that's kind of an addictive thing or like a very special thing about teaching that I, I loved. Um, the other part of it is that I my first introduction to teaching came from there's a section leading program at Stanford where the idea is that you have undergrads who are teaching other undergrads about the intro programming classes. And one thing I found which is so interesting is that if you look at all computer science majors as a as a group at Stanford, the stereotypes are pretty true. Like the majority of them are like not that fun to be around. <laughs> like they don't really want to have deeper conversation. They don't really want to talk to you like they're kind of antisocial they don't really want to talk to you um and it was kind of a turnoff for me honestly but then if you look at the cohort of people who were computer science majors who also taught like they were part of that section leading program that i talked about those people were way more sociable way more friendly way more likable and not only did it like they were a unique combination of having the technical depth to be able to actually know things well enough to teach it but they also had a skill with people right because i think you kind of have to have some bare bare minimum level of um people skill or kind of management skill if you will for teaching and that combination was so attractive to me and i felt like this is my tribe this is my this is the kind of people that i want to be around and i think that led me down this path of uh, of teaching and i think fast forward to today i actually think that i've loved being a youtuber i, I, I still not sure if i should call myself a youtuber or not but like for what it's worth the YouTube videos I've put out, I feel like I, uh, I've really enjoyed it because I, I've been able to have conversations with, conversations with other content creators or other YouTubers, and they're all so interesting. Like they have a very interesting perspective on the world. Um, and I, I've, I've loved being able to have that connection with people. Interesting. Yeah, the point about being valuable, being helpful to others definitely resonates. Um, for me, I think, you know, my, my father's a teacher for like 30 years. Um, mm. I was able to witness how much impact he had on other people, even for just like the smallest interactions, right? Uh, that's pretty fascinating. That's like the most rewarding thing, especially if you can do it at scale, 
Yeah. And, and that's, that's the other thing. Like, just to underscore your point, Seed, like, today is the golden age of being able to help people at scale, or teach at scale, right? Like, 20 years ago, it would have been so much harder. But now you have things like YouTube or Taro or Udemy. Like, you can actually do this and, and meaningfully help people in their career or in their job or, like, just even debugging something. You can do that in a way easier way. The friction to be able to help people is so much lower. And it almost felt to me like, what a waste of like, I have this capability to teach. Why would I not try it out at least? Um, and then once you're on that treadmill, that's kind of addictive to like, I want to make more videos. I want to get more followers. I want to get, uh, you know, I want to increase my quality, things like that. And that kind of led me to where I am today. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So Rahul, how did you meet Alex? You said you both worked on the portal team. Is that right? What's the story? There? Yeah. Yeah. The story is that I joined portal in August and Alex joined Portal in uh, May. And the backstory here is that Portal is this hardware division of Facebook. And, you know, back then, hardware was relatively, or it's very new for Facebook, even today, aside from Oculus. Like, there's very few hardware products that Facebook is developing. And so, because it was a brand new division, it was actually very secretive, too. Um, so, there was actually not very much kind of information or, like, cross-posting between the portal division and the non-portal division. And so when you came into portal, you were kind of in a bubble, like you were in a silo. Um, and it was hard to get the help that you needed. And so when I joined in August, I actually, portal as an organization was very chaotic and very, um, like there was, it was very hard to figure out what, what to do because <laughs> was so, so many things were breaking and so many things were, were brand new. And so Alex was actually pretty helpful. He was pretty instrumental in me onboarding onto the team. And so we did work together pretty closely for maybe three or four months. I actually ended up switching off to a different team within Portal. And then shortly thereafter, like I think maybe eight or nine months after that, Alex switched teams to Instagram. But uh, just like that, that initial three-month period, we he helped me a lot. And also, I think we developed a friendship just because we were both builders. We were both Android developers. Um, similar age, similar kind of backstory. And, and what year was this? Uh, you mentioned the months? Yep, this was... Uh, 2017. So I joined okay. Portal in August of 2017. Cool. That's, well, it's like five years ago. Yeah. No, I mean, it's been a five-year relationship. And I feel like that's a good thing. Like, I think if you do this, if you want to do a company, you want to have that level of relationship, that timeline with your co-founder, because you don't want to have like met someone last week or last month and then start a company with them. Um, you ideally want this to be a multi-year relationship. So what led up to Taro and when did you guys decide to take that plunge to go full time and quit your very, you know, lucrative Facebook careers or meta? Okay. The backstory is that you all remember Clubhouse, right? This It was iOS only app, which blew up in a huge way in early 2020, but that was in private beta. But then early 2021, they finally released it to pretty much everyone. And we felt we're both Android people, right? So we had a lot of FOMO. Like, wow, we can't partake in Clubhouse. This is going to be the next big social app. Um, and so our idea was we already knew each other pretty well. We knew that we were both like talented developers um, and we wanted to build something together. And so our thought was let's build an Android version of Clubhouse. And for those of you who don't know, Clubhouse is like this audio only app where you can just talk. There's no video, just like real time audio. And so the idea was, okay, in order to get people onto our Android version of Clubhouse that we're going to build, we're going to create content that we can talk about, which is going to be career content. Like how did we navigate the job switch? How do we think about 
how software engineering will change with COVID. How do we think about promotion? Things like this that we are uniquely able to talk about. We're going to talk about that on our Android version of Clubhouse. But at that point, we didn't actually have an app. Like, this is like an idea of like, we, we were like big believers in that quote, I think from Justin Kahn, which is like, worry about distribution first and then product second. Like you have to have the audience first in order to, to succeed. And so he said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to build up an audience of people who trust us to talk about career stuff. Um, and so what we did is we made these LinkedIn events where we talked about like, how do you, you know, prepare for a job? like in terms of leak code or how do you think about how long to stay at a job like all these different topics that we, we thought about and what we found is um those linkedin events had like literally 500 600 700 people show up live um the, it felt like there was a demand for this kind of career content and the idea was okay now we have 700 people who are listening to us now we just onboard them onto our android version of clubhouse <laughs> and that's be, that'll be how we get our initial seed of users but then uh we discovered that you know the android we actually did build out an initial version of the android app of clubhouse android version of clubhouse it didn't actually work that well <laughs> we we underestimated the challenge of uh um we underestimated the challenge of real-time audio and, and there are some technical issues that we didn't fully anticipate but anyway now we're like hey we actually have a bigger gold mine here uh which is we have this community of people who are interested in career development and so by mid 2021 we were creating events that routinely had thousands of people who were marked as attending and we had my youtube channel just growing and we also knew that we had this capability, like Alex in particular had this capability to build apps super quickly. And so he said, like, we're technical people. We have the audience. We have evidence of demand for this topic. Um, let's let's make a go at it. Let's actually build a company around it. Um, and then the other element of it, too, just in terms of, like, life similarity, like, we're both married. We both um, didn't have kids we were like, you know, we had the ability to like be able to like commit. And so I think that was another big thing. Like, hey, right now is the time. Two or three years from now, who knows what will happen in the world or with our family or our personal responsibility. Right now is the perfect time to to try this. And if it doesn't work out, we come back and get a job at Robinhood or Facebook or another company again, right? No harm done. And so the combination of all that gave us the confidence to, to leave. I'll, I'll add a bit more to the story. So... There was a, a product in between Android Clubhouse ripoff and what Taro is today. It was called Ember. I M B E R. So it's like Ember, like you know, like the small part of a flame, but with an I instead of an E. And it was a hub for you to share your side projects because we we're so passionate about side projects. We, we spent so much time working on side projects together and I've just been doing side projects for like nine years now. It was a huge failure. <laughs> um, but we actually like applied to... Um, the, the reason it was a failure is I, I think a lot of... There's, there's two types of people. There's people who like don't need side projects. Like if you already work at a decent job, you don't really need side projects anymore. Um, you could use them. But I think a lot of people... Uh, like just they don't want to write more code outside of work. And then there's people who don't have a job yet who could really use side projects, but 
they don't realize that they need to do that. Um, I think a lot of the people who struggle to find jobs are just, they don't really want to invest the time to build like a, a fully fledged product. They want to find like some cheat code. Like, oh, if I study like this perfect collection of leak code problems, or I like, I don't know, add, I just cold connect with enough people on LinkedIn, then I'll get a referral into Google or whatever. They want to find some cheat code to like land that first job or whatever job they're struggling to. And they don't want to go through the hard work of like scoping out a side project, building it out, releasing it, iterating on it by getting feedback from users and stuff like that. So the, the fundamentally, the demand for the product was almost nothing. Um, so we were able to get like some initial users on there uh, from like the tech career growth community we built around these live sessions that we did. Um, but it's just, we, we never hit critical mass and it's just not enough people do side projects. So a lot of times you would open up the app and there it's been like two days, but there's like no new projects posted there. But we actually applied to Y Combinator with that idea. We got demolished in the interview. It went really, really bad. <laughs> and yeah, we applied to a couple other incubators uh, as well. And um, we we got only one. It's called On Deck. And um, On Deck was pretty hot back when we applied for the incubators. This was pretty much a year ago, like October, like September, October of 2021. Uh, but on deck is not doing so well right now. I think they've laid off half of their staff in the past uh, six, seven months. And and by the way, I just wanted to mention, I feel like it is actually very instructive to also go through failure with a potential co-founder or a co-founder because like you're not going to, like you're going to probably fail a lot more than you're going to succeed. And so I think the fact that we, like I'm actually really, really glad that we navigated the idea maze with the clubhouse ripoff on Android and then we did this Ember idea, which is not very good. And then we navigated to what we have today. I feel like all that was really instructive in, in making sure that we could actually build a good product and that we were able to work through the ups and downs of things not working out. Yeah, we, we definitely learned a lot from that. <laughs> yeah, I feel like a lot of guests will come on and sort of talk about the main story, which is what they're working on now or what's really working well. But it's interesting that you, you both stuck with each other throughout that whole process. Uh, was there any point where you're like, I don't know if this is the right guy or was that really validating in terms of like, hey, it doesn't matter what idea it is. I kind of enjoy working with this person as a co-founder. I've never actually thought that. I've never really second guessed Rahul as, as a co-founder. I think that was like a big reason why I was willing to like go on this Taro adventure with him is because we, we, we've known each other for five years and just so many data points of our collaboration being healthy. Like we, we literally collaborated as co-workers back at Portal and had a really good working model there. And then after I switched to Instagram, we actually reconnected because this was the, when Barhol was starting his YouTube channel. I, I remember this. This was like in like 20, was that late 2018 or like 2019? Yeah. And Rahul was like, hey, it's you know been a while. Like I haven't seen you too much since you left Portal, but I just wanted to like grab lunch sometime and tell you, let's talk about side projects. Because ever since we joined Meta back in 2017 together, we we knew that each of us we like doing our, our stuff on the side uh, and then he mentioned like i'm gonna do this i'm gonna make a youtube channel and then i was like wait i'm actually really good at youtube because i made this like giant halo channel back when i was in high school and i was like literally one of the top subscribed people on earth with a youtube with a youtube channel back in like the first five years of youtube and then i was like well that's like super cool so we ended up like talking a lot uh, just mainly me just coaching him through like how YouTube works and how to build an audience and how to maintain that community among your subscriber base. And yeah, that, that you know, we just kept collaborating and then uh, yeah, like COVID hit and we were, we were like, well, kind of stuck 
at home. It's like kind of more time to do side projects, I guess, because if we can't go outside, we'll just die in the virus cloud. <laughs> so we, yeah, we, we uh, you know, came up with this like clubhouse idea and we built up tech career growth community and, uh, and, and all that stuff. But yeah, I, I've, I've always really enjoyed working with Rahul. I think he responds to feedback really well. He's super smart uh, and it works extremely hard. Um, and, and something I really like about Rahul is that he's always thinking about like ways to get lucky. There's just something Rahul always says is like, put yourself in a position to get lucky. So he just like try like a bunch of stuff and then it's pretty good at like eventually finding something that will work among the bunch of stuff. And that's, that's been really good for the company. And, um, I've, I've seen that behavior quite a lot over the past like five years. So I, I think we're a good team. I want to double click on the kind of minor pivot you guys did, right? From Amber to uh to tarot how did that happen how did you guys find uh tarot is actually the fit uh to the to the venture instead of amber yeah i think it was actually pretty organic so i i I think something that we were struggling with was we just didn't want to do the obvious thing so if you look Mm -hmm. at tech career growth community it's a community that wraps a series of live events like that's our bread and butter like we just love doing these zoom calls with hundreds of people and giving this really in-depth presentation about some tech industry topic and we we truly believe that the quality of the content is much higher than anything you'll find online because like we've actually worked at legit companies and we've gotten to like staff level right like a lot of the tech quote-unquote influencers on the internet they're like i interned at google at one time and that's like their entire resume it's like you're not qualified to talk about what it takes to be like a tech lead. So like the first two ideas, like making a clubhouse clone and like Ember are these kind of like weird augments of like tech career growth community. It didn't really capture what tech career growth community does. So Tara was really just like, let's just make a premium version of tech career growth community. It's, it's going to have like an exclusive Slack space and we're going to do more live events and they're going to be even higher quality live events with like, you know, case studies from L5 plus engineers at top companies where they talk about like some project or some, some micro interaction where they really crushed it. And that was probably, probably pivot, pivotal towards like a promotion. So yeah, that's uh, pretty much like how we settle on the idea. We're like, let's just play to our strengths instead of trying to create like this side app that's like vaguely connected to this giant community we already have. Yeah, I think the other element to that as well is that I feel like um, when you do a startup, you realize how hard it is to change behavior. And I feel like what Alex and I were trying to do with Ember was like we fell into that very common trap of like we think people in the world are like us or they should be like us. And for Alex and I, we were kind of unique in that we had done a lot of side projects and we cared about that and we published things and we iterated and we thought, okay, well, once people realize the benefit of having a published Android app or iOS app or you know a GitHub repo, which is something that they're proud of, they're going to start doing it a lot more. And we're going to effectively create a trend. We're going to create a behavior of millions of engineers who are going to publish their apps. And of course, it doesn't work out that way, right? Like, it's very, very hard to change behavior unless the incentives are so powerful. Um, and then I think, yeah, like, like Alex mentioned, when we went to Taro, it's like, what, do, what are things that people already want today? And how can we make it way easier to attain the thing that they want? And that I think is a big part of the reason why we have, you know, tens of thousands of users and hundreds of paying customers is that we're not trying to change who they are. We're trying to make it easier to get what they want. Quick question to sneak in there. Why Taro? Where did that name come from? (laughs) It's yummy. Yeah. uh, So we actually made a video in Taro about this, uh, but kind of the high level 
points here was number one, it, it does have positive connotations. It's it's a yummy food, and I think it's healthy, or it's not too unhealthy at least. It's pretty short, uh, just four characters. We wanted there's a very tactical reason why we wanted something that was eight characters or less is because the the title of your app. So Taro is initially mobile only. Title of your app, you want to cram in as many like search terms in there as possible. So when people search for certain apps in the the Google Play Store, or the Apple App Store, like your app actually has a chance of showing up. So we wanted a lot of characters to play around with to like just shove in terms that people are searching for. And of another, the last big reason was domain availability. So we we came up with like a bunch of you know names that are relatively short, positive connotation, easy to say. And then we did like the the domain check, and pretty much all of them didn't have a a, a good domain. Like pretty much all the good .coms were taken. And Taro had jointaro.com and it wasn't a bajillion dollars to get that domain. So that was actually like a very, very huge reason that we chose Taro. Like if it, if we didn't, if jointaro.com wasn't there, there's a decent chance we would be named something different. And it sounds kind of boring to like, <laughs> to like optimize for such a pragmatic thing. But it, I mean, it's so important, right? It's really important for your brand to have like a very easy to say website, especially a .com because like unless you're like tech nerds like us, you won't really understand like what's a dot io like what is that? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I've gone through that exercise many times myself, so it's a good name. I was just cur- curious where the you know inspiration came from. Is all that's a very good quote from from Alex. I like it. Do the obvious thing. Um, that's definitely a, a very nice nice lesson for us <laughs> as we brainstorm our ideas. Yeah, one thing one thing that Alex says, which I like a lot, actually, is like when mm-hmm. we were talking. I feel like we should when and if we come up with like a company motto or like a company value system, just will be on it. Um, it's like do the zero IQ thing, like do mm-hmm. the zero IQ solution. Like right. oftentimes, like you you think about okay, like how do we make this scale well, or how do we handle this edge case? It's like no, don't don't do any of that. If you're a startup, do the zero IQ solution and do the stupidest possible thing that will help make progress toward your goal. And I feel like that mentality, I think, has served us pretty well in just like making progress in a way that, you know, a company like Google or Facebook would not have been able to do. If you guys are looking to hire a zero RQ consultant. (laughs) That'll be be me. I'm going to frame myself going forward as a zero IQ consultant. Damn it, the job's already taken. (laughs) Um, Yeah, the last thing I would comment on this is um, I think... You guys have an unfair advantage compared to a lot of B2C companies. You guys already have a large following, right? Like you said, distribution is actually the harder part compared to product. So that that's that's the you know the unfair advantage and the impressive part. Uh, you guys are already have a following and awesome content creators already. So the last thing I want to ask about this part is. Uh, you guys mentioned you guys went to YC. Uh, just really quickly, like, why did you guys choose to, uh, um, you know, take that route and uh, maybe just one device for people want to get into YC? I'll just be quick and then Rahul can chime in. Well, we wanted to go to YC because it's YC. There's like so much <laughs> prestige around Y Combinator and they clearly have a stellar tra- track record, right? Like yep. Stripe, Airbnb, Instacart, DoorDash, like these are all YC companies and that's absolutely insane. There's no incubator that is remotely close to YC in terms of the in terms of the track record. So like it, it was just one of the absolute best things we could do as a company to like not die, have the support of YC. And and they changed the check size from 125 to 500 K. So that's actually like a really, really nice like logistical boost. And 
yeah, I mean, highly recommend YC for anyone considering it. Like if you're a founder, like YC will almost certainly like change the trajectory of your company. Why YC? I think that I'll say something even stronger than Alex. If you're a first time founder and you get into YC, you would be stupid not to take it. I think there's so much value. The signaling is very impressive. Like just in terms of getting meetings with other VCs or doing your future fundraise, there's a huge amount of value in having the YC brand name. The money is good. You can actually pay yourself a salary when you get in and maybe hire people. And the third, which is maybe even the most important, is the advice that you get. It's like you have this accountability and this um, kind of office hour system where you get feedback from the partners and other companies that is amazingly valuable. So I think that YC is 100% worth it for anyone who's considering applying. In terms of advice, the main thing I would say is just be very, very clear and concise. I think that um, it's so easy to just start using buzzwords and add fluff into whatever you're saying whenever you have a question asked, like, what do you do? And you start using like, oh, we're doing something with AI ML for, you know, this like esoteric domain, like just tell me concrete words using nouns, what you do and how it helps. And if you can do that, you're already ahead of, I would say 85 or 90% of the companies that apply to YC. Just tell me what you do and make it clear to me, make, help me understand what you do in two sentences. And if you can do that, you're already ahead of most companies even most like established companies, you go to a lot of these, especially B2B websites, it's a freaking disaster. Yeah. You look at a website, like 80% of the time, I have no idea what they do. They're like, we optimize your operations on every aspect. Yeah, That means nothing to me, right? Yeah. <laughs> Making your customer acquisition revolutionize your like supply chain problems. Like, Cool. So I'd love to roll us into the next section, uh, which is sort of where we flip the script a little bit. We talk a little bit about really just anything that comes to mind. So here's a question for the group. AI generated content, right? Both for, you know, we've seen a lot of great AI tools like Dolly 2, Imogen that that are able to create uh, designs, right? Visual, you know, pictures, images, uh, and videos. But what about AI generated, generated code? Do you think AI generated code could replace software engineers or a large part of them uh, in the foreseeable future? I actually don't think it will because um, I, I, I think a lot of people don't realize that there's like two layers when it comes to code. Like first of all, there's like the actual code itself, but then there's also like system design, which is at a high level, what is your strategy with this code? Because like with any system, there's many ways you can design it, right? You can like shove everything into one class or you could modularize it. You can define a delegate pattern. There's all these different ways that you can structure the code at a high component level before you actually build it out, right? So do, doing like the rank and file stuff, which is like, okay, I, I know I'm going to like write these files and I just need to write this for loop that goes through like 100 elements. That, that can be, I mean, that's already being done with GitHub Copilot. And I don't really think that's a huge deal. Like that's, I think it's just a plus for developers, like the boilerplate stuff. Like the more, uh, like the simpler work that's already been decomposed. I don't really see that as like a threat if the machines can do it. But the, the high level system design is like, okay, what does the, you know, how do we organize and modularize like the, you know, the actual nitty gritty code? That's going to be hard for a machine to do. And I think if you end up, like if you want to grow to a good software engineer, that's kind of a requirement, which is why I made a big system design series on Taro just like last week. And as, as long as the machines can't do that, which I don't think they will, like at least for the next 10, 15, 20 years, 
then I think software engineers, at least the good ones, still have a lot of value. Sorry, uh, Alex, I want to push on that answer a little bit, right? Let's be very precise about the question. I think the way I would phrase it is, during our lifetimes, right, call it another, I don't know, 50, 70 years, depending on how optimistic you are. Uh, during our lifetimes, do we think a majority, call it greater than 50% of all people who hold the title of software engineer would be replaced by AI generated? Because you were you were qualifying the answer a little bit, right? You were saying, hey, the good ones would still be around the folks that are doing, you know, the system design and the more intelligent, the artsier, if you will, more creative parts of it would still be around. What about the masses, right? How, what percentage of software engineers must be doing just really repetitive and menial tasks for you know a large part of their job? Yeah, I, I still don't think the majority will get replaced because I mean, there's there's a lot of compliance issues around like having an AI write your code for you and like who owns the AI. I think so. Even ignoring the fact of whether or not AIs can do it, there's also the question of what well, companies let the AI do it, and I think that's for the most part no, and. Like, I mean, we all know how slowly the B2B space can move. Like, there are so many B2B tools that were just released 30 years ago, and they're bad, but then people still use them because, like, I mean, they work, <laughs> uh, even though they're super legacy. So I, I don't think it will happen in our life. Even for the more rank-and-file coders, the, the, I, it, it, it's essentially like, let's say you have a task, and then there's a machine that does 95% of the work. I think businesses still want to know that there's a human, like, watching the machine and just kind of, like, pointing it where to go. So that five percent is still valuable. <laughs> so I, I actually don't think um, like it like there's a big risk of like AI completely removing a bunch of software engineers. I think Rahul has something to say as well. Yeah, I mean, I have a pretty strong opinion here. I think that software engineers as a whole will certainly not be de- not be replaced in our lifetime, like in the next 40, 50 years. The reason is because programming and software engineering are two very different things. And in fact, that's the whole premise of Taro, right? Like the whole idea of what we're building is that, hey, you're a software engineer. There's so much more to your job than writing code. And yeah, compared to writing code in Vim or Emacs to now using an IDE, you're going to be way faster. Now compared to going from an IDE to using GitHub Copilot to help you fill out the boilerplate code, you're going to be way faster again. But there's so much more about the teamwork behind a a project or like the contract between different APIs, defining that, um, figuring out how your team is laddering up to the business initiative, right? Those are things that I think are inherently human. And it's not clear to me at all how GitHub Copilot would help you with that. Um, the other dimension to this is that, yeah, like, like Alex said, I think that um, the impact of more and more machine generated code or like machine assisted code is that software engineering as a field field will become even higher leverage. So I miss making this up, but like I think that a software engineer might have like 4x more productivity than like a normal profession, whatever you define normal as. Like the amount of impact of leverage that software engineers can have relative to another profession is way higher. I think that's not controversial to say. But with the introduction of things like GitHub Copilot, it's going to go 10x even more. So a good software engineer is going to be like literally 50 times more valuable to society compared to the shopkeeper who's doing like commodity work. And so I do think that the top engineers are going to become even more valuable, command even a higher premium on their compensation. And then it, I think the interesting question becomes what happens to the commodity coders, so like the bottom 20, 30, 40%, what happens to them? And I think the question mark here is how do you interface with the AI? Um, like 
I actually have never used GitHub Copilot, so I'm not entirely sure. But like, I think that the whole art to um, how do you now communicate with the AI on what code you want? And it turns out that that's actually not a very well understood thing. It's like kind of like photography, right? That's the classic analogy. You go from painting painting to, pho- to photography. Photography is not as simple as like I take a picture of a scene and I get that scene back. There's so many things around focal length and um, you know how much light are you, how much exposure, uh, you know how much power is in your camera, like all these different technical things that really lead to a lot of depth in just communicating with this effectively AI, which is a camera. And the same thing is now going to happen with you know AI generated code. So TLDR software engineering is going to be alive and healthy for many many decades. Um, and the result of AI-generated code is that software engineering will become even more powerful than it is now. An analogy here is that like we've been working on self-driving cars for I think 15 plus years now, and they're still like super far from like being completely mainstream. And I'm just saying, there's a lot more people who can drive a car than people who can write like a legit <laughs> pilot, like a legit piece of software. <laughs> so if we can't even crack that, because driving for the most part is pretty mechanical and how are we going to crack like this ultra complex task task of writing clean scalable code that is not going to completely collapse once it reaches production sharing my two cents as a software engineer as well um i think i'm more or less in line with what uh alex and rahu are saying i guess the only thing i would qualify is you know by ai obviously i'm meaning um kind of specialized ai right not general AI. So, you know, if the question is for specialized AI, I, I think I agree uh, with um, with uh, Rahu and Alex. The only thing I would add is, um, it, in my opinion, it would, it would require a relearning process uh, for most of us, right? Uh, I mean, Rahu, you, you mentioned we need to basically leverage the AI more. So there's going to be a learning process. How do we actually integrate better with the tool we have, right? So that that's a skill uh, we need to retrain. And in the process, there are going to be people that, you know, not gonna, not good at relearning it and uh, will be, you know, losing their job. Uh, but uh, so they should sign up sign up for Taro to become a better engineer um, in that in that case. That's how you Taro. beat the AI. You get Taro. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so basically the consensus here, I'm going to put down our software engineer's opinion on whether software engineering is going away as a no. Um, for AI-generated code. I think you guys make some really good points. I do want to challenge a few things there, right? So in general, I don't disagree, but since you all are on the same side, I'm going to play the devil's advocate. It's a couple of things. One, similar questions have been asked in the past, right? Uh, Before the software revolution, we had the industrial uh, revolution and automation in that industrial revolution. So you can imagine the world going from craftsmanship, right, craftsmen making small batch stuff, to... Uh, assembly lines of factory workers to now assembly lines with more and more robots and fewer and fewer people. Uh, And each time that happened, there's two schools of thought. One school that's saying, oh, God, this is the death of this industry. Everybody's going to lose their jobs. And the other school saying, well, not really. You're just going to move on and have more leverage, right? Used to be that one craftsman could finish like one watch a day, but now... 50 of them on a assembly line could make 500 a day, uh, you know, so they're like 10x uh, more efficient. Uh, But there's also the undeniable trend in some of these past examples that as you increased in leverage, what happens is the world's demand is not infinite. So even if you were to have the ability to take 5,000 workers, retrain them to run robots, so they now have 
you know, uh, 100x the productivity that they would have had by working by hand. The world doesn't need 100x more products. And so naturally, a bunch of them do lose their jobs because only half of them need to be employed to create 50x the amount of products. And that's still making the world a better place. Uh, and so what's your response to that in, in terms of, you know, uh, the software engineers are going to get just so much leverage and become so efficient that you can look at the products we're spending you know, billions of dollars on today with thousands of software engineers might be able to be done with 200 engineers with really cool AI that could just do all of the legwork for them. What happens to the rest of the, the software yeah, I mean, engineers? I, I feel like the analogy breaks down a little bit for me because I, maybe I'm speaking as a tech bro who is like too optimistic about software. But I mean, the whole beauty of software is that it can be applied horizontally across literally every single domain. Software is eating the world, right? That's the common, the, the famous Andreessen quote. Like a watch, I can understand. Yeah, there's like a limited demand for high-end watches. Once you exceed that threshold, what do you do with these extra craftsmen? You lay them off. But with software, I feel like, I don't want to say there's an infinite appetite for good software, but there is a very large appetite, I would say, for software that can be applied to many, many different domains. And many of them, don't, we don't even know exist yet. Like many of them, for example, like uh, like the one that we might talk about with designs, right? Like there's, there's whole other industries of how do you make the computer generate really interesting artwork? That's like a kind of a software problem, but like prompt engineering problem. Like there's entirely new domains that will be invented where software can be very valuable. And so I, I, I'm not entirely convinced that the analogy holds holds water i think another thing here i mean this might be de derailing the conversation too much but uh, i think it's similar to what rahul said about the difference between programming and software engineers so i i definitely think that if like github copilot or software equivalent gets like stupidly stupidly good there's probably like some amount of very 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 commodity engineers that are doing very menial like tasks on the coding side that will be automated out but I mean, this could be my bias working from like, like a big tech company is a lot of software engineering isn't even coding. <laughs> so like my, my day to day, as I was leaving, um, I mean, both Robinhood and Meta, like I was coding maybe 20, 30% of the time, some months it was as low as 10%. So it doesn't really matter how good the AI gets at automating the coding portion. Most of my job is not writing code anyways. <laughs> um, and this is naturally going to happen as companies get bigger. So like with bang companies and all these ginormous companies, naturally the highest leverage thing you can do as a software engineer is not to get better at the coding portion. It's to get better at like building relationships and running meetings and communicating and writing like good design docs and stuff. So it, it doesn't really seem... Like, it, it doesn't really seem like we're playing the same game. It's like, oh, you're going to automate this thing at 10% of my day? Go ahead. That's I, I still add value with this 90 other percent of my day. And, and that's why I'm, I'm able to be like a tech lead here. Um, so that, that's like another another component put into it. But yeah, if there's like some robot that can go into a meeting and like draw XFN alignment for four teams, then okay, I'll be scared. <laughs> it's like, okay, yeah, we might, we might get obsoleted. <laughs> so I think I'm... I'm less, I'm slightly less optimistic compared to kind of Alex and Rohu, right? Um, I do agree with you, Hanson, there's going to be a paradigm shift where, you know, pe some people going to get laid off. Uh, not everybody's a tech lead, 
right? So if we, if we take a step back, I think the general trend uh, I share with you, this is not our original thought from me, it's, it's from uh, uh, David Freeberg, um, basically saying that the economy's trend, uh, trajectory is basically what coming from the economy of labor, right? So, you know, in the old days, people are actually making shit, right, <laughs> by hand. So a lot of labor uh, going on in the economy. Now it's the economy of creators, right? So people like Rahu, uh, like Alex can tell a story, but they still have to create the story for themselves, right? And and those people become the, the most vibrant part of the economy. With AI become more and more sophisticated, we're shifting to economy of narrators, storytellers. So exactly like uh, what Alex said, right? It, it's the part, the part become valuable is where you can drive, you know, cross-functional conversations to align the priorities to tell a story that people can get excited behind. You need to retrain your brain to be able to become narrators, right? If, you, if you're still stuck in writing code to programming, uh, you'll be left, left out, right? There, there's no doubt about it. So, so you know, I'm not, I'm not saying um, if you just, you know, lay here and don't learn new shit, uh, you're still safe. You're not, right? Like I said, you sign up for Tarot and, and uh, become a real good uh, person who can tell the story and, and uh, interface with the AI. So, so I do want to ask this last question uh, for the last 10 minutes we have. Uh, and we ask this question to, to our guests. Um, so what, what is success to you? Like what drives you daily um, and, and makes you happy? I think for me, it's obvious. I just want every software engineer in the world to be happy and more effective at their jobs. That's it. <laughs> so you're the software Buddha? <laughs> software Buddha. That, that, that's the goal. I mean, ultimately, it would be uh, everybody working in the tech industry, eventually everybody working, period. I just want people to have healthier careers because there's, there's so much crap about the corporate world. There are just so many processes and politics and all this stuff that you don't learn in school. And then you go, you go to the real world, you get reality check, and you just get destroyed. By your, by your lack of knowledge and true fundamental skills. I want that to all go away. And yeah, we'll start with software engineers and then eventually, in order for you to succeed at your job, period, especially if it's like a knowledge worker, white collar type job, you will need Taro. That's the vision. I feel like uh, the interesting nuance here and frankly, something that I've struggled with and I think Alex, like speaking for both of us, we struggled with together is depth over breath right like do you want to do something which is going to change how society works and you're talking about millions or maybe tens of millions maybe even billions of people who are now going to uh change their behavior or like start using your product in, in in a very deep way right um it's like you know that's the vcs are in the business of funding Airbnb or Uber, like they've changed how we work as a society. Um, but there's another part of it too, which is like, what if we have 10 people hmm. and we get them a job and their life is dramatically changed for the better because of the work that we've done? All right. Are we still happy? And I think the answer is that I want both. I want to like, <laughs> I want to have like huge, huge career impact and have them get paid a lot more and be a lot more fulfilled in their job and feel confident in what they're doing. And I want to do that at scale. Hmm. And so it's like, you want to have the best of both worlds. Um, but, but I mean, that's like the long-term vision. I think success is like feeling fulfilled on that journey, hmm. right? Like, yeah, that's like the outcome. 
But I think what I think about a lot is when I wake up today versus when I was employed at Meta versus when I was employed at Pinterest versus when I was at Stanford, how excited do I feel about the work that I'm doing today, the valuable time that I have, wherever I'm putting it, am I directing it towards something I'm really proud of? And it has compounding value. Mm. Not that I'm going to just do this and then it's ephemeral, like it's gone, right? Like, am I doing something which the day after or the week after or the month after, it's actually going to increase in value over time. Um, And I think if I do that, then I I view that as a, a good day, a successful day. And on the days where I feel like I'm just stuck and I'm, you know, doing things that are one-off, like, you know, not really scalable. That's where I feel like I, I get frustrated. It's a very mathematical way of looking at it. <laughs> I like it. Have to be practical. Have to always look at yeah. it through that lens. So which one of you is the idealist? Or are you both very pragmatic? I mean, I guess, Alex, you did say you wanted all software engineers to be happy. So that's pretty idealistic. Yeah, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> I think you have to be able to do both, right? Like when you're, when you're in the moment, you need to be able to just put one foot in front of the other and pragmatically understand like what it takes to get there. But I think it's also important to think big and have that North Star. And tactically, I, I think those two are actually blending pretty well together because yep. in order for you to go through the slog of putting one foot in front of the other, you need to be actually fighting for something, right? You actually need to be fighting for like some vision Mm. that is extremely appealing and and something that makes you feel warm and fuzzy, just imagining a world where it actually has come true, right? So uh, that's kind of like my mentality. Like, I'm not stupid. Like, I know that it's going to be very hard for us to do that. Statistically, probably not, but might as well try. Right. Yeah, and I feel like the other part of it too is like the reason I hesitated or right. like I had a hard time answering that is I feel like as a founder you have to be both idealist and, and both an idealist and a pragmatist. Yeah. Because like when you go out and you raise funding from VCs, you guys will encounter this too. You have to not only paint the picture, like, you have, like the narration that you talked about, Hanson. You have to not only narrate how this is going to become huge and millions and billions of people are going to be impacted, but you also have to have a high credibility path to get there. So you have to, on one hand, talk about 10-year vision with a lot of excitement and and uh, conviction. And at the same time, talk about how the thing that you're doing tomorrow is going to get you there. And that might be like cold emailing 10 people or whatever whatever it is, right? So you have to be very, very pragmatic and balance that with, you know, this pie-in-the-sky vision. Right. You got to describe the promised land and get everybody excited, but you also got to open the ocean. Exactly. So, Rahul and Alex, thank you so much for your time today. Inspiring conversation. And let's hope that AI doesn't replace all of our jobs in 50 years. I really hope you're right. Thanks for having us, Hanson. It's been super fun. <laughs> <laughs>